But first, happy Election Day. Throughout this campaign season, just like any other, plenty of issues have been used to rally voters to a candidate's side. But one issue that you see pretty much any year during an election, that's crime. Mass shootings, school shootings, and violent crime are on the rise. Crime skyrocketing. Streets are exploding with drugs. Yet we keep hearing about a rise in crime, a crime wave, a crime-ridden city. Worse than it's ever been. But is that actually true? It turns out the headlines don't tell the whole story. So what is the whole story and what do the numbers tell us? To answer this question, we turn to Robert Vargas, an associate professor and deputy dean of the social sciences at UChicago. Welcome back to Reset. Great. Thanks. So, Professor, we hear a lot, as I said, about crime rising. We don't just hear this in Chicago. We hear it across the country. Is it true? I think um, before answering that question, it's important to first understand what crime is. And I think that there's a misconception that crime is something like temperature, that you could simply take an instrument, measure it, and, oh, it's 70 degrees. Crime is more than just a statistic. It's also a commodity, Mm. meaning that there are people, there are institutions, organizations that benefit from crime and, and the fear that crime generates. And some of those folks have historically been elected officials, which historically, going back to the 1920s, have used crime as a way to stir up fear of immigrants or people of color Mm -hmm. to win elections. And um, it's the conflation of those two that makes it very difficult to answer the question of, is crime going up or down? Because sometimes you can tell people that crime is, in fact, statistically going down, but that actually doesn't resonate with people. And, And my thought immediately, Professor Vargas, is what kind of crime are we talking about? Are we talking about theft? Are we talking about gun violence, domestic violence? What what kind of crime? You know, depending on how you're hearing about it, the context and political ads, I think, often refers to violent crimes or um, robberies, homicides, shootings. But um, I believe there you just simply look at the Chicago Police Department's uh, data portal on crime. There Mm -hmm. are hundreds of different categories on crime. And so in some ways you can cherry pick the statistics to get any output that you want yeah. to say that crime is going up or crime is going down. And so, again, it, it's really hard to say. And oftentimes it's a more, of a, more of a reflection of people's preconceived intentions of what they want to do with the crime data versus actually getting at some preconceived question. Preconceived intentions. Um, how is crime tracked? You mentioned Chicago police data a moment ago, but how is crime tracked? How do we, how do we get these numbers? Well, um, some of that is a black box, but typically what happens is police report a crime. They have to file the paperwork. Um, And I think it's important to remember that these are reported crimes. They're not always accurate. Um, They aren't always complete accounts of the context of what happened. Mm -hmm. And what is made available to the public are usually just a few lines of the incident that happened when, in fact, the paperwork that police file especially with cases like homicides, have paragraphs and paragraphs of description Very lengthy. Yeah. that provide context to understand that's what's going on that, again, isn't made available to the public, but is packaged in ways to, again, support different institutions or elected officials' agendas. So the, these crime tracking standards that are being used right now, how long has it been since that's been updated? Uh, you know, from what I understand... 
Because it looks like it's been years, centuries even. Yeah, I know that at the federal level, there have been changes to how crime statistics are compiled state by state. But at least in the context of Chicago, um, there have been some efforts to automate the process and and incorporate technology. But Mm -hmm. by and large, I think what's been consistent throughout is that the police department has been primarily in charge of compiling the data, Mm -hmm. but also... Uh, deeming who has access to the actual raw data to go in and get the full context and and get a complete picture. Are you able to talk more about those federal changes you just mentioned? Because I know the FBI recently revised the way that they collect crime stats. Right. That I there are others who are better experts on that than me. Yeah. Um, how do you think that the the changes made though impact those crime stats that we see today? Well, from what I've read about this. Um, it makes it very difficult for researchers who are studying this, you know, you know, without these political motivations to draw any conclusions. Because one of the uh, really benchmarks of trying to assess something over time is that you have to have consistent measures over time to be able to say that something is changing. But when you change how data are collected, that's like the perfect recipe for a deeply flawed analysis or study. And so many of the um, I think most respected researchers that I know that are, that are doing this kind of work just put their hands up and say, unfortunately, we can't really draw conclusions with this because um, because of these changes. Yeah. Um, just some notes I have here say, say that with the FBI crime uh, changes, uh, crime stat changes, 40 percent of law enforcement agencies, I guess before the change, they had not been reporting their stats to the FBI, so you know, including cities like New York and yeah. L.A., right, which is wild when you think about it. And uh, with the old system, here's an example. If a person was robbed and injured in the attack and they died, the incident would be recorded only as a murder, right? Mm-hmm. And so in the new system, both the robbery and the murder would count along with, as you talked about, details yeah. of the incident. Yeah, and, and, and this can be this, – this can lead to many uh, – bad consequences of people uh, or studies being done to evaluate certain interventions. And it turns out that the interventions weren't actually effective, that the change was more reflective in, of a change in reporting like yeah. this. Um, so that's why it's uh, it's uh, it makes doing this work more challenging. You know, it sounds like crime statistics are going to change dramatically, whether the actual number is the same or it's going down, simply because we're changing how we record these crimes. Mm-hmm. Should we just prepare for that difference to come up? Or is, is there maybe another way that we can tell how crime is changing year to year? Or you know, a better I th- way? I, th- I think I think before doing that, it's important to begin asking the right questions of like how do we come to an understanding of what's a what's a productive definition of safety? Because the implication with studying crime is that the end game is just reducing crime. But yeah. when you look at who are the different stakeholders calling for decreases in crime, they're actually asking for many different things. Some small businesses are looking to protect their bottom line. Residents are looking to keep their kids safe uh, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, you know we're, we're, there, there's too much enveloped in the crime statistic by itself that I think that what – and part of the reason why we're – always having this conversation is because we're always asking the same questions. And I think that what we need is leadership across different sectors to gather people together to get at what are some real 
smaller objectives that we can aspire towards because simply trying to generate crime decreases isn't going to fulfill the requests of what all of these stakeholders are are asking for. Yeah. Is there work being done, Professor, to uh, make the measurement of crime more universal? Um, and who would, who would even decide that? You know, there are an increasing group of scholars, uh, organizations, and activists that are trying to think critically about what could be alternative ways to me- measure and implement public safety? Hmm. And so alternative 911 responses are an example of this. Um, I forget the correct name of this, but the implementation of safe passage workers. These are like basically... What does that mean? That's a, it's, it's a program where essentially you station uh, crossing guards like within a mile radius of some of the most high violent crime areas of, of a city and the presence of those individuals has been correlated with decreases in in crime, but really? also in increases in making people feel safe. Because um, while statistics might not make people feel more safe, visibly seeing someone, uh, whether it's a police officer, a social worker, a mental health worker. Even being, a crossing yeah, guard. Visibly seeing something uh, or someone who can report something makes people feel safe. And so I think that there are efforts to pursue these alternatives, but I don't think that we can actually get to achieving those Mm -hmm. until we actually do something seriously about the faulty use of crime statistics and crime data. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we are talking with Robert Vargas, who's an associate professor and deputy dean of the social sciences at U Chicago. We're discussing why crime statistics should be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, So, Professor, you talked before about uh, preconceived intentions can you dig into that a little bit more and um, how that works, especially when it comes to communities of color and uh, just being targeted? Yes. Yeah, so uh, legal scholars and historians have written this for written about this for decades. But historically, um, elected officials from both parties have have um, re- the term is called governing through crime meaning that to get elected and to demonstrate the effectiveness of public policies, crime has been turned to as an issue historically that elected officials have blamed increases in crime or violence or often social protest Mm -hmm. on communities of color or immigrants and then then accused their rival as as being soft on those populations Mm -hmm. and then used that issue as a way to stir a, a political base to, to 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 win office. Yeah, I, I mean, we know that these communities that we're talking about, they're already being over-policed, right? Yes. Black and brown neighborhoods. Y- yes, and, and I think that oftentimes this this dynamic is described as puzzling or wrong. It's a, it's a wrong use of t- statistics. And the way I look at it is like, no, actually, these groups are getting precisely what what they're what they desire, which is they, it's precisely meant to stir fear and getting uh, voters to the polls out of fear and having them vote on those fears. And repeatedly, we've seen this in the 90s with the support for the crime bill uh, in the in the 70s with Nixon's investment in surveillance. Mm-hmm. It, um, this this playbook has been played over and over again. Why does it continue effective. to work? I think that we could have a whole other conversation about that, but I, I, I would point to a few things. I think that one is that um, 
when it comes to actually studying crime, there are many parallels to, uh, let's say, uh, tobacco or fossil fuels in the sense that, you know, when, 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 it, when one hears about a study on the link between smoking and cancer, the notion of industry-sponsored research makes sense. It of makes course. sense in that context. Yeah. A very similar dynamic is happening when it comes to crime and policing research because you have surveillance companies, tech companies that are giving private donations to police departments and city governments, and they have an economic investment in crime, in selling technologies to police departments. And the research that gets put out of this, sometimes researchers disclose that their funding is from these private interests, yeah. and sometimes they don't. And that, and so when you ask the question, like, well, why is it that we rely on this? Is because there's there's a whole structure to this world that is that has an incentive in, in maintaining the status quo. But I'm hopeful that there are an increasing number of elected officials, people in philanthropy and research that are getting wind to this. Um, and I think in order to get to that goal of trying to actually do something different, to really innovate in this space. You have to unpack and untangle the mm -hmm. institutional forces that are working that are working on this. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing from this conversation is, you know, crime statistics that we hear about all the time, they aren't giving an accurate representation of what is actually happening around us. And there might perhaps be better ways to, to judge levels of crime in, and, in our cities. And the individuals doing the research on this often have conflicts of interest that they're not disclosing. So what do you want folks then to keep in mind when they're bombarded with stories over and over of this rise in crime, this crime wave, explosions? This is so difficult. I've, I've had this conversation with so many, with, with, with so many colleagues, with so many neighbors. It, it's, it's really difficult. And I think that it's, it's a little unfair to put so much responsibility, I would say, on the individual citizen here. I think it's at the institutional level where folks need to step up. I think uh, philanthropy, uh, big business, uh, universities, um, those it's the leaders of those sectors that really need to step up because I would argue that they too do not benefit from the status quo. Mm -hmm. A subset of folks with economic incentives in this are benefiting from it, but it, it's not good for business. It's not good for communities. It's not good for government to continue relying on this deeply flawed way thinking about how we make ourselves safe. And so I think what I would say is that, that um, individuals working at the institutional level need to come to the table and think very hard and invest in innovation. That's a good point. Robert Vargas, Associate Professor and Deputy Dean of the Social Sciences at U Chicago. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Thank you.